everybody and welcome to more of a comment than a question. My name is Smithy and joining me is my friend and co-host Paul Connor. Paul, how's your week been? Hi Smithy. Uh, my week's been pretty good. Um, I had a very busy day today. I've been in um, meetings back to back since 9am so I'm a bit frazzled but I'm excited for this podcast. Yeah. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to lose <laughs> Ready to lose this argument nice. uh, badly. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm excited to beat you with a very special guest. Um, so today we're joined by um, Rob Travis, who is um, a social neuroscientist um, and an assistant professor in the social personality area at the University of Oregon. Um, and he studies like self-representation, social cognition, and how that looks, um, how those are represented in the brain. So Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you all. Nice. Uh, very excited, too. Before we go into what we're going to talk about today, can I tell a story that sort of directly and indirectly involves both of you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, go ahead. Okay. So this is, you know, January, end of January 2018. I was set to interview back-to-back -back at UC Berkeley and then University of Oregon. So the, the day before the interview started, we um, there was like a social put together by the grad students. It was all the prospective students were there. And that's the first time I met Paul. Like I was in conversation with another prospective student and then Paul joined us. We talked about, you know, a bunch of things. I remember talking about Freud, about open science and somehow SIPS came up. And I think Sanjay's name came up and I mentioned, oh, I'm interviewing at Oregon. And Paul was like, you should go to Oregon. And I, I remember thinking, I'm like, let me interview. I haven't even interviewed at either place first. Like, let me, anyway. So I, of course, like, you know, I had my interview at Berkeley, then I came to Oregon to interview, which was a fantastic interview. It was, everybody was super nice. The campus was great. I remember talking, Rob and I didn't get to talk a whole lot, but I remember having a bit of a conversation, which was really nice. Um, fast forward to the fall of that year, and I'm, of course, at Berkeley. This is the first colloquium of the semester, and I'm sitting there with um, our friend Dan, Dan Stancato, um, just having a chat, and then Paul joins us. And he, the first thing he says to me, I thought you were going to Oregon. I'm thinking, well, I never said that, but I was like, oh, well, they didn't accept me. And then Paul like took a pause and then he looks at Dan and he goes, is that what's happening now? We're accepting rejects from Oregon. That's well. what I knew we were going to be friends, Paul. Yeah, it's not, it's not a great advertisement for our program <laughs> that we're just now the backup school for Oregon rejects, but hey, like schools rise, schools fall. Um, you know, congrats, Rob. You're now officially more prestigious than UC Berkeley. Maybe what's going on is that both of our programs are just attracting really good candidates. Um, that you know, we have this overflow of, of good people. So I'm sorry we didn't get you something. Oh, not at all. Not at all. It worked out. But um, great. You've dodged a bullet, Rob. She's she's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. That I will not contest um, at all. Um, but great. So we were hoping to just sort of talk about neuroscience in general, but I would also just love to talk about in depth about social neuroscience. So Rob, do you just want to you know start us off and talk a bit about yeah what you do and what exactly is social neuroscience? Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good probably a good place to start. You think nice, I would have a easy, nice easy question. A nice easy like, question. What is what social is... neuroscience? Um so uh, maybe I'll start with a little bit of background just to warm myself up a bit. Um so when I started uh in I, I did my undergraduate studies at University of New Mexico. And when I started 
getting interested in psychology, um, I, I was really interested in social psychology and that's what I wanted to do. And it, it, that was my, my, my jam, right? Um, I was actually not interested in the brain explicitly whatsoever. Like I remember saying it out loud to people. Um, and what happened was UNM doesn't have a proper social psychology area. Um, it turned out um, they have an evolutionary psychology area which had some like social psychology related topics in it. So I was like, okay, you know, that sounds interesting, but you needed to take more biology and biological related classes to do that. And I happened to take, um, you know, intro to behavior, uh, brain and behavior at the same time I was taking an intro to philosophy class where we were talking about philosophy of mind, you know, and these two things kind of hit each other a little bit at the same time, where it's just, you know, eventually, you know, I was in my philosophy of mind class and thinking, you know, if a limitivism is true, you know, then the brain is all that can be important. And these things kind of came together. And what I eventually ended up compromising on Wait, was what like, what is a, li a limitivism? Sorry. Yeah. So it's, I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to derail this too much right away, but, um, you know, it's this idea that, you know, thoughts, emotions, all these things are, you know, we can get rid of these concepts really, because what they actually are just, you know, underlying brain processes, and we shouldn't even have a vocabulary for them. You know, we're trying, it's materialism, but extreme materialism, like, um, and I don't know if I really ascribe to that view or not, but, um, but what I landed on was like, okay, well, if I'm interested in things that social psychologists are interested in, and I have this newfound interest in, you know, the, the brain and what the brain does and whatnot, um, you know, how can I combine these things? And, you know, this was circa 2000, Five or so, there was this burgeoning field that I, you know, looked up that was called social neuroscience, and there was a few people in in, in the, um, you know, when you do a Google search that use that term, and I was just like, what is this, right? Um, so it depends on who you're talking to about what a definition is, and I don't know if we've we haven't had a meeting where we came together and decided this is what we're going to call ourselves, but um, maybe kind of traditionally what it is is a group of social psychologists. Um, decided, you know, there's this emerging technology that, you know, was largely fueled by fMRI, though EEG work had been done for a long time, um, of people wanting to say, okay, we're learning about uh, cognitive processes in the brain via cognitive neuroscience. Can we do similar things with social neuroscience? You know, what are the brain mechanisms, so to speak, of, you know, the types of phenomena, behavior that, that we're interested in? And of course, other people have been proposing that for years before that. So, John Cassiopo is probably the person who coined the term social neuroscience. And his perspective was basically like, we should be getting people, you know, looking at multiple levels of analysis together to talk about how we can kind of relate these things to one another, right? So biologists don't really think about the social context of the, you know, type of things that they study, neuroscientists, I should say. Um, whereas uh, social psychologists maybe don't think about the underlying mechanisms between these two areas and how can we combine them? So, you know, if, you know, if I had to write the Wikipedia article for what social neuroscience is, you know, it's basically just, you know, kind of trying to understand um, using both social psychology and, and related disciplines to understand their underlying mechanisms within our central nervous system. So some people might limit that to the brain. Some people might um, extend that to more, more broadly, you know, physiological measures or other things like that. But um but there's, there may be some disagreements about what direction 
um, and maybe this is something we'll talk about. I'm, I'm sure it will be, but what direction, which one of those is contributing, right? A lot of it was social psychologists trying to use neuroscience as a tool to understand social phenomenon. But I think there's another way of thinking about it too, where we can think about, you know, how do social psychologists contribute to our understanding of the brain and the cortex and subcortex and all these other things and how these phenomena are processed in these regions, right? So, um, or in this, in this system. And I, I, that's the long-winded um, autobiographical story of social neuroscience for me. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I mean, it does seem interesting. And I, and I, yeah, I find it fascinating when people are like, but why do we need to look at the brain? I think, Paul, you mentioned it to me the other day when we were sort of talking about the neuroscience. Like, what is the use of, like, how can you even relate what's happening or more activity in one part of the brain? And that relates to some you know, cognitive process. Um, so yeah, I maybe want to just like ask how much weight do we think we can give, um, these measures, things like EEG, fMRI, um, how much, given how noisy they are and, you know, how much variation they are like, yeah, what can we, how can we best use them if we are trying to sort of map this onto these like very complex higher order processes? Yeah. So, you know, so it becomes a question of just like any other measure, right? You know, how reliable are these methods, right? Um, you know, what, uh, you know, are they valid in any sense, right? About in terms of, you know, we know that fMRI is a proxy measure for underlying neural activity, but, you know, that's a problem with relating what we're doing with fMRI to neurons, but is it still a problem with, you know, how we're using fMRI to inform behavioral studies and that's not exactly the same question. But I think it depends on your goal, right? So if you're coming at this as a, um, not so much in terms of you know how good are these measures, but in terms of what the measures can do for you, it depends on what your goal is, right? So if your goal is, as a social psychologist, to try and learn things or make new insights about your social psychological phenomenon um, of interest, it's an open question or it's one that you can explore to see how much, you know, these neuroscience measures actually help you achieve those goals, right? Do they provide any new kind of information that you might be interested in that you couldn't get behaviorally? So the way that some people have at least used to, or maybe some degree still think of these things as like, oh, maybe we can use this as sort of some kind of implicit measure, right? So we can't ask you what your attitudes are for, uh, towards a particular thing but we can measure your brain activity and perhaps measuring your brain activity can give us a more, um, we can kind of see past what you're saying and get into what you're actually doing a little bit. So that might be one way it can do it. Whether or not we achieve that often is a different question, right? And I think there's good reason to be skeptical about some of those things sometimes. The flip side though is, you know, and this is where, you know, I, I don't know how most people think about this stuff, but, um, where I've talked a little bit about this in, in public spheres is um, you can also be a social psychologist who is interested in studying the brain for its own sake, right? The brain does stuff. It does, you know, the, the, the mind is what the brain does, right? Um, so it's not like, you know, so I, I feel that social psychologists have a place uh, to contribute to understanding what that piece of meat between your ears is doing in a way that other disciplines might not. So if your goal is to use the brain to advance social psychology, you know, yeah, it may or may not be the best way to do it, right? It's too, it's, it's very expensive. 
especially if you're doing MRI work, um, it's noisy, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's other things, right? But if your goal is to understand what the, what the brain is doing, um, and you're particularly interested in what social, how social phenomenon, things related to social psychology are doing that there, that's another worthy goal in, um, unto itself, right? And I can, uh, <laughs> I'm happy to share with you some examples <laughs> or some stories that I have of, of where these things kind of go awry or, or where these, where, where I've noticed these things pop up in weird situations. So yeah, do you want to, yeah, please do. I mean, I will say, yeah, I mean, this I'd sort of relates to. to the, um, your blog on the heart of science, um, Sanjay's blog, excellent post. I thought it was so well written and, you know, certain sentences, I was just like, wow, that's, you know, really good writing first of all, but yeah. And, and I, you do make the argument in there as well that, you know, you could just be, you could study the brain for the sake of it. And I do think that's a worthy goal, but yeah, please tell us where it goes. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, and I don't want to <laughs> feel like I'm already bringing out the, uh, the, the thesis here without a lot of buildup, but, um, so I'll, I'll give you this, I'll, I'll share with you this story that I, that I think is kind of maybe funny is not the right word, but, um, so when I was in graduate school, um, my, uh, PhD is technically in cognitive neuroscience. And as part of a degree in cognitive neuroscience, we were required to take, you know, neuroscience related classes, including at my institution, the medical school neuroscience course. So in order to get our cognitive degree, we had to go take the med neuro, we called it, um, in there. And, you know, for the med, these, so this is a required course for all students in med school. They have to go through the medical neuroscience requirement. And of course, they cover all possible things in medicine that you could be interested in or things that would be important to know as a doctor, right? So what they spend a lot of time on are things that are related to things that doctors encounter a lot. Cranial nerves, because being able to move is really important. Descending motor tracts, right? To be able to um, breathe is, is important. Um, so, you know, we spend a lot of time dis not dissecting. Well, we did dissections too, but like uh, studying um, like midbrain uh, nuclei and all these other things that are really important for doctors to be able to diagnose what kind of problem you have. Um, and it makes a ton of sense, right? But they eventually worked up. We went through all this stuff that maybe isn't as, you know, germane to psychology, but, uh, but again, eventually we got into cortex or we got into other things that are more um, related to cognitive type stuff more generally. And so we'd start with like the sensory systems, right? This is V1, this is V2, this is the difference between V1 and V2. Here's the primary auditory cortex, whatnot. Then we start getting into like association cortex and then it starts to get more complicated. And what association cortex is, is just parts of the brain that don't have a um, kind of a primary sensory modality to them. Then maybe they do a few different things. So we're marching, so there's parts of the parietal lobe that are uh, association cortex, but you know, a lot of it's in the frontal lobes and stuff. So. Um, we're all getting really excited, all of the psychology students, because um, we're getting to the prefrontal cortex, right? So finally, we, we have our big sections like, all right, what are the doctors going to say about the prefrontal cortex? And my favorite part of the brain, or the part of the brain that I study the most, is, is the medial prefrontal cortex. So I'm really interested in hearing what, you know, the professor is going to say about the medial prefrontal cortex and the frontal cortex more generally. You know, the prefrontal cortex is, is a whole, you know, the frontal lobe is a whole lobe on the brain. And it does all kinds of stuff. But what the, what the professor in the class said, you know, after we'd gone through all this other stuff, he's like, all right, and this is the prefrontal cortex. And this does things like personality and bladder control. <laughs> and, and, and that's basically, I mean, it wasn't, that's basically all we talked about. And it's like, this is what we're teaching medical students about what this large part of the, the brain oh, is doing, right? Yeah. 
Um, and I just felt that was so unsatisfactory. It's, you know, um, Is what about 50 50 split in the prefrontal cortex between it's, it's all personality control. and bladder control? <laughs> and you can say you can see where this came from, right? The, the, the personality stuff came from the Phineas Gage stories, right? right. Where we had where he had his frontal lobe blown, blown out that changed his personality, so there must be something involved in there. You know, doctors deal with bladder control issues quite a bit, and that's a you know a control thing that needs top-down executive control over your bodily functions. So when people have prefrontal cortex damage, that can be a problem. But um, you know, from my perspective, that's that's really unsatisfactory way to understand what this big part of the brain is, especially a big part of the brain that contributes to what makes us human. So so that was you know. <laughs> Um, that was another point of motivation for me to kind of dig into this stuff a little bit. So, so Rob, I have to admit that I'm something of a neuroscience skeptic. Like when I read your blog, you sort of start with this anecdote of you were in this class and this professor was sort of talking about um, something to do with the amygdala. And then everybody started proposing study ideas about the amygdala and then eventually they were like well look i don't you, these are all fine but I, I don't care about the amygdala i care about behavior i care about like what it does like you know and i guess like i think that's kind of me like if i if i was to get a job tomorrow i might say something similar you like you said that like it's that struck you as like just a wrong-headed thing to say at the time and you make the argument in the in the in the piece that like well the brain it's interesting to study the brain in its own right and you said it before and i i don't know if i agree with that like it's smriti's like how how could you say that oh no no okay so let, let me let me try to steel man this right like in my view okay so in my view nothing is interesting in its own right like you could have a very like like the the mating behavior of some bird of paradise in papua new guinea might be very complicated uh but to me like i i wouldn't spend a lot of time trying to learn about it because i don't i don't see it as that relevant to things that i care about or like goals that i have so like and i say this only to establish that it's not just it's not necessarily true that something's interesting in its own right like it, it like totally somebody could totally think that this bird of paradise to them is really subjectively interesting and i think with the brain i mean it may be the most complex system that we know of in the universe like the most complex kind of organic thing so like in that sense i could see somebody being totally subjectively into it like no this is this is such a fascinating blob of, of flesh i really totally divorced from any real world outcomes of this research i really subjectively want to understand this thing and that i think that's legitimate but i also would say like to me it seems kind of legitimate also to not subjectively be that into just understanding the brain for its own sake yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I actually don't, I don't think we disagree as much as you think we do. So uh, my comment there was that um, it's interesting in its own right to me, is, is basically what I was saying. And, and I'm not alone. I'll get to this in a second. But but the the argument mostly was about if you're going to be using the amygdala to make inferences about social psychological phenomena, you can't then not care about what the amygdala is and does, right? So, you know, if you, Paul, don't want to use neuroscience to understand 
if you don't think it's necessary to understand the types of things that you're interested in, you're not required at all to, right? And you're not required to care about that. But if you're going to be using neuroscience to draw inferences about social, if you're going to be using neuroscience as a tool for social psychological discoveries, you need to care about what those what those things are. You need to care about the amygdala or whatever thing is you're studying. You need to care about the you know fMRI methods that are um, you're using in concert with that um, at some level. And if you don't, um, you run the risk of skipping a lot of really important steps in the arc between um, you know just knowing where the blobs are and actually knowing how they're informing or representing, so to speak. The phenomena of interest, right? And there's lots of places to make um, kind of different errors along that chain. And unless you do it properly, you can make a mistake. But just to say, I don't care what the amygdala does. I only care what it can tell us about social psychology. Um, you're skipping those steps. And I think, you know, a lot of early social neuroscience work kind of just wanted to run into it. Like, what can we do to inform social psych? And that was motivated by a bunch of papers to that were in good faith saying, we don't just want to stick in people in the, scan in the scanner and say, hey, look, we found the love center. Hey, look, we found the discrimination center. You know, that's, that's not super informative for social psychology. But at the same time, if you really want to dig in and use the, again, use these kind of methods, you need to understand what it is, what the actual underlying mechanisms may be doing. And you can't just dismiss that as a, give me the blobs and that will help me make sound inferences. So I don't think you're required at all to care. Um, but if you're, if you decide at some point to use the amygdala to inform your, your studies, um, then I think you are required at some level to, to think about it a little bit. Yeah. And to, I guess, back up what Rob is saying a little bit, let's say you're interested in, you know, schizophrenia, or you're interested in depression. I think it sort of makes sense to care about what's happening in the brain and how we can, yeah, inform that to, in, you know, for treatment, right? So if you if you understand how dopamine systems work, how, you know, serotonin and all this stuff, right? We had to have an understanding of that to develop then the, the pills like the SSRIs or even, you know, tricyclic antidepressants, right? Those were all based on our understanding of what's happening in the brain. Um, so I think in those cases, it's super helpful. And I, yeah, I've, I mean, like have such a better understanding of how motivation works in the brain um, after the semester and all the sort of dopaminergic systems and how the brain responds to, you know, fail, like errors and how that can be helpful in sort of regulating your attention, right? So anytime there's an error, your brain, the systems of your brain that control attention come online, not online, but, you know, they get activated a little bit more. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Or in just how looking at how intrinsic motivation looks like in the brain. I think that's I mean, I personally think that's that's very fascinating for its own sake, but I also think that it will be helpful for my own research and how I'm thinking about these things. Yeah, and you know, there, there's um, there there are concerns too, though, on the other side. So you know, I don't want to make it seem that you know I think that we should all be going and doing neuroscience research instead of doing behavioral research, um, because of course you know the especially for a lot of the stuff that we do as psychologists in this domain, um, you need to have good behavioral work in order to begin to do any of that stuff um, effectively, right? But but we need to keep in mind what's going on here. So um, neuroscience is a field unto itself, right? The brain is an organ unto itself that psychology isn't the 
umbrella category over, right? So there's lots of people who study sodium ion channels um, in, you know, or study oligodendrocytes um, uh, to see how these things, you know, operate under different procedures, right? And those don't even have behavioral measurements with them. And that's all part of, you know, understanding more about the brain at a particular level of analysis, right? Um, but neuroscience is, so, so in, a, in essence there, you know, behavior, at least at the way that we think about it at a social psych level, isn't super <laughs> relevant for them when they're just trying to manipulate ion channels, essentially, right? Now, what level of analysis you care about will inform these things in different, in different ways. Um, and where I get a little frustrated sometimes is that um, there are things that I think are useful and informative in this line of work. And there's some things that I also think we probably shouldn't be doing as much, right? Um, so the concern, I think, for a lot of psychologists is that these neuroscientists are coming in. They're not really informing any of our theories very much because they're, you know, from my perspective, maybe that's not even the goal, but maybe some of them say that's the goal um, and are doing these experiments. And what they're doing is they're drawing a bunch of funding away from our studies where they're not really advancing what they say they're advancing. They're, they're maybe advancing their understanding of cortical function, but they're not really informing social psych theory. And I think that's actually a really legitimate criticism of a lot of social neuroscience research is that, um, so I've heard people say that, you know, if they're on an NSF study section and a social neuroscience proposal comes in, if you fund that proposal, they, they tend to be pretty expensive because scanning is expensive. And that can take away from useful behavioral studies that would ultimately maybe be more informative of, cog of, of brain function if those were used instead, right? Um, and again, it just sort of depends on what the ultimate goal is of your research. And I think if you don't start by thinking about that from the outset, you can fool yourself into making the wrong kind of contributions. And that's something that, you know, I struggle with sometimes, you know, so am I more interested in my brain questions or am I more interested in my behavior questions? Um, I tend to be on the brain side. Like I, I'm interested in what the ventral medial prefrontal cortex does. I'm interested in uh, the fact that it's, implicated in self-referential processing because I'm interested in self-referential processing. But not everything about self-referential processing <laughs> um, involves knowing anything about the brain. And indeed, you could probably come up with a lot of good uh, study designs, not knowing anything about the brain at all, that get at what it is we're talking about in that domain that you could then, if you want to, carry back to the neuroscience, but you never have to if that's not your goal. Hmm. Yeah, perhaps like um, it might be worthwhile to think or like to ask you like for examples of like what you think is good neuroscience and what you think is like like redundant neuroscience. I remember like maybe like my second or third year at Berkeley, it felt like almost every week in our colloquium we had like a social neuroscience talk, and I I just was so like unimpressed by it all because like it just seemed to me that every single week it was like here's another person who's taken some finding in social psychology and just put people in a scanner and they're now telling us what brain regions are involved in this kind of phenomenon that we kind of already knew about and that helps us because you know it's such a it, it's felt like such a dead end because it's like oh well this helps us because now we know 
that this thing is associated with this this brain region and like and nobody at least among the social psych students who ostensibly these colloquiums were for none of us were doing neuro so like at the end of the year i like i like semi jokingly like we like made this like complaint about like why why are we being forced to listen to social neuroscience every wednesday none of us are doing it doesn't really it doesn't like you said like doesn't advance our theories doesn't really give us anything other than kind of obscure factoids about linkages between brain regions and stuff so like i i feel like you probably agree that like some of this stuff is a bit redundant but like i mean i guess the um the, the drug example like actual developing drugs that help people with schizophrenia and stuff like that i mean obviously that's hugely beneficial um but like what about yeah healthy brains like what what are the best examples to you of really good social neuroscience that's not just redundant in that way yeah so um i'll I'll give you my favorite example and it's it's one that i do i do work in and and part of the reason why i got into this stuff so there was there's this long standing finding in um memory research that essentially if you give people a list of words to remember or a list of objects to to recognize or whatnot things that are self-relevant will be remembered easier, right? It's the self-referential memory effect. Um, and, you know, this seems obvious, and it's been talked about for a long... It was first observed a long time ago. I don't remember exactly when. But there was this debate that happened years ago about, you know, what was the cause of this self-referential memory effect that was really that's really reliable, right? Um, so there were two different schools of thought. One was that, well, maybe the self is some sort of um, special schema, right? That, you know, if some, once something is self-relevant... It imbues a special kind of, I don't know, <laughs> something to it that allows you to remember that a little bit more easily, right? So that's what's that's what's happening. Then there was a different school of thought, kind of proposed by people like Mazarin Banaji and Tony Greenwald, that was basically like, no, 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 you know, it's not that there's anything special about the self per se. It's that you know that that it's probably just normal. Uh, it's um, a normal process, just a powerful one. So that's what they called it. They said it's, it's powerful, but ordinary. Um, so then this debate raged on for a while. And the problem with this debate is that the two different theories make the exact same prediction, right? You know, if it's self-referential, if, you know, these items in a list or whatnot, you know, have some self-referential things about them, um, you will remember them more. And you can't distinguish that behaviorally, Right. So what a group of researchers did in the early 2000s was they kind of they put people into the scanner and they said, okay, we're gonna what we're gonna do is we're gonna put on the screen whether or not you know a trait adjective, and we're gonna say does this describe does this describe you yes or no, and then in other trials does this describe another person they used former President Bush at the time, or is this word a in capital letters or lowercase letters as a control, um, and the researchers who did this study said like there's no way that there's going to be a self region that pops out of this thing it's all going to be regular semantic memory type stuff right these kind of like lateral memory systems that they knew were involved and these things from other studies um and when they did this they saw this big effect in the in the uh, cortical midline structures which are things like the medial prefrontal cortex and the um posterior cingulate cortex that contrasted that were greater for self than they were for other the, the other person or the cat or the case condition, particularly the medial prefrontal cortex was a region that was involved in that. And then uh, th- these are components of the default mode network. Um, so they're not the default ne- network as a whole, but they're parts of it. 
And then subsequent research, so they didn't do a memory task in that study, but then subsequent research showed that, yeah, it's indeed the MPFC that's predicting the, the whether or not you recall the words later. So what's interesting about that is that, you know, what you've, and, and, and in my mind, maybe some people would disagree with me, but like, that's one way that brain imaging settled a debate, right? So what happened with the self-referential memory effect, it doesn't seem powerful, but ordinary. It indeed seems to recruit a completely different brain system than what we'd expect in order to um, differentiate these things. And, you know, I, I love this example because, um, you know, it's, it's a nice illustration of what brain imaging can do. The problem is, you know, that's my favorite, but there's not a ton like that, right? You know, there's not a ton of like really clear examples of where this might, uh, where something like that happens. And that's a, a, a legitimate criticism of a lot of stuff that we do. Um, but, you know, if you were a student sitting in that and you were just seeing, okay, so here's the blob for, you know, self, like, eh, who, you know, who cares? Um, it doesn't really tell you anything. Well, if you, if you kind of know the context of it a little bit, um, both in terms of the neural systems that are involved in the phenomena and the social psychological theories and their history, you can, you can actually gain some insights there, but that's hard work because each of those things is really complicated. Yeah. And I want to add another example that I, oh, I'm sorry. Do you have a question, Paul? No, no. Uh, well, yeah, I, I guess I, I still wonder. Okay, so it's a good example, right? There was this debate. It kind of solved the debate. It, it definitely looks like it's a different system in the brain. But in terms of practical implication, like knowing that, like solving that debate, what what's the benefit other than solving the debate? Like that's not that's not clear to me because if we're still just like making if if either if either like option would still make the same predictions behaviorally, the practical usefulness of solving that debate isn't hundred percent like obvious to me. Smriti looks very well, confused. Don't you like, think? I mean. <laughs> I mean, you could say that about anything in science, right? Like, oh, I mean, I mean, first of all, you've just not created knowledge about what's happening. And then don't you think that any hypotheses you have about the system going forward would be informed by knowing which one of these is, it is, right? Like if people are operating under the other assumption, thinking that it's mm. not, right? I think most, I mean, most things that we would call useful knowledge would be like, uh, the, now I make a different prediction based on like solving this debate. So don't, like, don't, now I would do something differently. If I wanted to make somebody remember something, now I would do something differently. Whereas here... But how do you know that would not happen in this case? I mean, it's kind of weird to think about a priori. Like, well, I, I, I don't. I, that's what I'm asking. Like, uh, does, this, does solving this debate have practical implications for anything? It, it may not have practical implications for, like, what you... You know, if I give you a list of words and I have, have you remember them, Okay, yeah, a different brain system does it than if I give, you know, they're self-referential than if not, right? Um, but if all of a sudden you're having a hard time, you know, remembering things that are related to you in some re for some reason, right? Um, and you go to the doctor and you say, you know, I'm, I'm having these issues or whatnot, you know, having a clue about what, if I know that two different memory systems are at play there, um, let's say, I'm, I'm, I'm boiling this down, I'm making this more simplistic. It actually is. But if I'm a doctor and I think, you know, I know there's these two memory systems that play these, this person has these kind of symptoms and they seem to be more associated with deficits in this kind of thing than in another, rather, um, you might be able to kind of diagnose them with, you know, okay, this seems to be more of a, 
you know, a lateral prefrontal cortex problem as opposed to a medial prefrontal cortex problem. Um, and then you can do certain kinds of um, tests to figure out how best to treat them, right? Um, and these things aren't always tumors that are necessarily, you know, show up in the scan or whatnot, but they could be things like that, right? So even if they don't have a practical implication for um, social psychological theory, they do teach us something about the brain and how the brain is affected by different things. And, you know, to the extent that um, to the extent that we have that knowledge and we can actually use it practically, it might not be for social psychology purposes, right? Um, and that's another way that social psychology can contribute to a broader um, discipline and a broader uh, scientific landscape than just it informing itself, um, which would be another case. I mean, yeah, who who cares about the brain? What's the practical implication? Well, who cares about social psychology? Like, you know, <laughs> what are they do, what are they doing to help um, save lives? Right. So that's a good question. I want to clarify that, like, I, I don't. I'm not putting social psych above neuroscience in terms of practical usefulness here, but I would say. If you're going to be useless, it's good to be cheap and useless. Sure. <laughs> I agree with that. I agree with that. But I will add my example here because it, I, like, I really like it. So there's, I mean, this longstanding, um, you know, behavioral research on intrinsic motivation. And there's this finding that if you um, give people reward, like external reward for something that they intrinsically enjoy, like right classic study, kids are doing, have crayons, they're drawing with them, getting no reward for it. And suddenly you sort of give them some reward for it and they stop doing it, right? They sort of lose this intrinsic motivation. Well, some researchers sort of tested that. They put people in the scanner, had them do this task that they had to Sort of pilot tested that it was intrinsically motivating you kind of had to like there was a stopwatch they had to click or like right five milliseconds after it hit like five seconds um and one group of people were getting paid for it the other group was not getting paid for it um and then they took them out of the skin and what they saw is that the people in the first session the people who were getting paid for it showed much more activation in the striatum in the ventral striatum i think mostly where you have like most of the sort of dop dopamine activity happening um or like also like just sort of you know it's sort of the motivational aspect of like expecting a reward for things um and then they took people out of the scanner and they looked at behavior as well so they looked at um are, are people out of their own volition, doing this task on their own outside of this while they're just waiting around. And it did seem like the people who are not getting an external reward for it did do the task like more than the ones who were getting paid for it. And then they put them back in the scanner. And the second time, neither of the group were, was getting paid for this task. And what they found in this case is that the people who were getting paid in the first one, which showed much higher activation the first time, just showed no... Well, it was statistically insignificant amount of activation in the striatum versus the people who were getting no reward for it still showed the same activation. So, I mean, it's not solving any debate, but it's corroborating this theory that we have. And I think that there's value in that, right? To be able to show that there is something happening different in the brain when you're giving somebody an external reward for something versus not. I personally think that that has value. And and that sort of brings us to, okay, before we, that brings us, that's a good segue to the paper that we also wanted to sort of discuss, um, which recently came out. Um, it's a preprint at the moment um, from Yael Niv. Um, it's called The Primacy of Behavioral Research for Understanding the Brain. Sort of got a lot of attention on Twitter um, some time ago. And even the paper, to me, seemed like it's sort of pitting behavioral research against, you know, neuroscientific research. And I'm not sure... 
like I, I don't see them to be, you know, sort of like they, they don't have to be put it against each other. We can do them together. And I think that in some cases also improves prediction for other things. And I like, yeah, why can't we just do both? Right. It doesn't have to be either or. Yeah. What did you think about the paper, Rob? I mean, I didn't think that was the point of it personally. I thought like the point of it was, yeah, behavioral research is being devalued um it's like most funding is going to neuro we we need to reaffirm the primacy of behavioral data for learning about the brain and i thought he made pretty good arguments um well yeah i'm not saying that's the point of the paper i just said in Mm. some parts it to me felt like it was sort of pitting one against the other Mm. and i just i don't see i don't see no reason why we can't combine both approaches yeah i think i think uh where I, I liked the paper a lot. Um, in fact, a lot of what she was describing kind of was echoed in my blog post a little bit. Not not totally, but um, I agree that we shouldn't be pitting them against each other because they are complementary. But here's where I'll, I'll poo-poo neuroscience a little bit. And again, it's related to um, not you know the study of the brain itself, but rather the kind of sociology around all these things. And that's that um, if you are looking for funding for these kind of things, it's much easier to get a lot more money to do a mediocre neuroscience study that maybe doesn't inform, you know, any, you know, outside of these itself too much at all than it is to get, you know, funding to do a really good behavioral study, which may be, which may ultimately lead to more robust theories that you can then compare against the neuroscience eventually if you care to. You don't have to, and I think where she was coming from is that you know there's been a ton of emphasis on emphasis on this for years that you know um, there's not as much value you know it's seen as oh that's just behavioral stuff like we're doing the neuroscience and that's that's where all the action is happening and I think the argument Paul I, I agree with you that the argument was just that you know this is kind of backwards right um, you know we can't do good neuroscience the way that people who are study higher order cognition, as she calls it, um, and as, you know, I would call it too, really, we've learned more about, uh, you know, not higher order cognition by just behavioral studies by themselves. But I think the key thing that I I really liked in this preprint was that she said, we actually learn more about the brain by doing really good behavioral studies than, than than we do by looking at the brain by itself kind of thing, right? Because um, what you know, what does the brain activation mean outside of the context of the behavioral paradigm in which you elicited it? And I think that's you know, I think that's a really interesting point. The the only thing that the, the reason why I think combining them is important is because you can have a perfectly beautiful uh, cognitive science model about how different phenomena are related to one another, but if you don't confirm those within the anatomy, the neuro, the functional neuroanatomy, to some degree, well, that might be in you know coherent within itself but if it doesn't match to the biological reality um, then that's a problem right so you know um how you know i don't think it's necessarily a problem that reinforcement learning was figured out you know was largely figured out via behavioral studies and then confirmed within neuroscience findings i think those are complementary but i agree with her that you know Thinking that we're going to solve all of the behavioral problems through the neuroscience first is probably a little bit misguided, um, and not one that I would advocate for, even for the advocate I am for using for being interested in these kind of uh, topics. Yeah. So I was thinking 
with about that when I was reading that part about you know that um you know behavioral studies can tell us more about the brain whether we need to draw a distinction between brain and cognition because they're not the same and I'm not like I think behavioral studies can tell us about cognition but if you want to know about the brain you have to look at the brain so I wonder if it's sort of important to make that distinction and I think she does at some point in there and I think she says you know you know of course, if you're interested in knowing where something happens in the brain, you have to go look, you have to go do that. But again, Paul, I, I think you're right that she's arguing that, you know, this needs to be, that that's not the, the funding needs to reflect that, you know, um, we need to be funding better. We need to prioritize that in the, what she calls the hierarchy in a different way than we do now. And I think it's an interesting thing about the way that people perceive these kind of work, uh, people who do work in these domains, um, you know, just the lay person on the street, you know, if I go tell them I'm a neuroscientist, they're like, oh, cool, you know, um, but if I say I'm a psychologist, they're like, oh, you know, you read my you know yeah, exactly, kind of thing. <laughs> what am I thinking? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> which, which and, I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it brings up an important question, right, of like, does this kind of neuroscience work make it look more science-y, right? And it, I it, it absolutely struggle with has that too. allure. Right? Yeah. So, Rob, I think you're right that I'm right. And I definitely <laughs> think, I definitely think we have our 30-second thing, Smriti, for this episode. That part where Rob said, Paul, I think you're right. That's, I'm going to edit all of that. <laughs> we should go for but I wanted to, yeah, I, like maybe you can settle a debate for us, Rob. So maybe you can come down on my side again on this. So Smriti and I were arguing the other day and I was I was kind of asking for examples of, you know, like practical advances that neuroscience has given society. Right? And um, one example that she gave me, no, Smriti, let, just let me do this. One example that she gave me was like, oh, well, um, they relied on uh, neuroscientific evidence when they were deciding to no longer uh, execute minors. So, like, essentially, um, there's evidence from the brain that the part of the brain that's involved in self-control continues to develop until age 25. And that this evidence, this was used as evidence for why we should not execute minors, apparently, or something like that. To me, you don't believe me? No, no, no. This is like, I believe you, but I think the court made a dumb decision because I actually think that that brain evidence is not relevant. And let me, let me, uh, let me say why. Okay. So if you bring that evidence to me and you say, okay, the, we, here's scientific evidence that this part of the brain keeps growing until somebody's 25. Therefore, uh, I think what that means is people can continue to get better at self-control until age 25. People aren't fully developed until that age. Therefore, we should not execute them, right? So that's what you're saying to me as the judge. My question to you is, well, how do you've shown me this evidence, this physical evidence from the brain. How do I know that this actually means anything about self-control and individuals ability to increase their self-control have you also tested for example do you have corresponding behavioral evidence that individuals can increase their self-control up until that age or are you just you know making inferences based on what you think about this brain part because if you do have that behavioral evidence that's all I care about. That's all actually all I need, right? That's sufficient for me to make this decision, right? Because that's, that's actually what we care about is people's ability to uh, 
develop their self-control so whether this brain part's growing or not that's kind of like beside the point if you can show me behavioral evidence that people can increase their self-control up until the age of 25 if you don't have that behavioral evidence how the hell do i know that this brain part like how do how the hell do i know that it's valid to infer from the growth of this brain part that people can increase so like have you met teenagers I mean, that's kind of all the... I mean, risky behavior is... Okay, okay. I guess I'm just trying to... Like, the point I'm making is that if you have the behavioral evidence, that's sufficient in this case. Like, and that really should be what we care about because we're talking about behavior. Like, that's what what we care about when we're making this decision. And if you don't have the behavioral evidence, the brain, the neurodata doesn't mean anything yet, right? Because you haven't... Like, yeah, like maybe it could be good for developing a hypothesis. Oh, I think this brain part is related to self-control. It keeps growing till we're 25. Therefore, maybe it's the case that we can keep developing a self-control till we're 25. But if you don't have that behavioral evidence yet, on what basis are we making this inference that growth in this brain part equals ability to develop self-control? So who's right, Rob? And why is it me? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat here and not <laughs> and not pick a winner by sidestepping the, the the debate a little bit. So you know this this is a question about I think this is more of an issue for the law, right? If you if you view the brain, at, well maybe maybe not. <laughs> Let me see. Um, I, I think you know the behavioral evidence or the you know overall what people do is is pretty clear, right? Um, yes, teenagers are a little bit more impulsive. This is getting out of my area a little bit, so. Maybe I'm going to misspeak, but um, <laughs> this is all of out of all of our areas, so sure. No worries. <laughs> That's just what we do on this pod, right? Um, so. <laughs> um, maybe they misbehave a little bit more, and there's a lot, or, or they make more impulsive decisions uh, more often. Um, and then you know, there comes to a point where you know, brain development is changing or stops changing as rapidly. Um, it's always changing, you know, somewhat, um, but starts stops changing as rapidly, and that's when we know that. Um, you know, these behaviors start to change a little bit. And I agree that, you know, that doesn't really tell, you know, knowing that fact about uh, brain development in the context of, you know, risky decision-making doesn't really inform um, all that much about these things that we can't really get from the behavior experiments. I think the, and I don't, let me say that I don't agree with this line of reasoning, but um, I think probably what the law is coming down on is that, Hey, you know, we're trying to hold people accountable for their volitional actions. And if they don't have the machinery in place to, you know, if the average person doesn't have the, that, the machinery in place to do that effectively as they would you know, when they're an adult, when our legal system is in place to um, try them as that, um, can we really, you know, hold them accountable for that? Um, and in that way, you know, in a twisted way, then yes, the brain stuff is kind of relevant because they're not responsible for when their, um, you know, when their inferior frontal gyrus stops, uh, d- you know, <laughs> developing. Um, and if it's true that that is actually contributing to their impulsive behavior, then yes, it is relevant. The issue is that we don't know to to what degree that it is doing that all the time, right? And there isn't a single brain region that it controls your behavior, um, controls all your behavior, or it's responsible for all your morality. Um, so even the question of like, okay, we have this brain piece that does this one uh, kind of 
psychological thing, I, I think it's just a, it's a non-starter, right? Um, you know, that's just not really how the brain works. And when we think about, you know, what, what does a neuron do? A neuron's job is to communicate to another neuron. Like that's what it does, right? So, you know, there's kind of like a, a, a network built in already. So asking what a particular region does, I mean, in terms of trying to map a really complex phenomenon to a really complex set of cells um, can be kind of tricky. I think you can make some, I think you can make some um, uh, some headway in that in asking questions about that a little bit. But I think at this point, we haven't done the legwork in order to properly um, make the reverse inferences that we want to in order to inform these kind of decisions, right? So there's there's a couple of things that you can you can do. You can say you can take Paul's route and say, well, forget the neuroscience, like. We don't need any of that stuff. We know how impulsive people are. Let's just go with the behaviors. Um, you could take the route that the lawyers did and say, hey, it's neuroscience, so it's real, right? Um, and therefore, case closed. Um, or you can take the hard route, which is really try to understand at what level is, you know, at what level of analysis and, and, and at what level of um, how distributed even these processes are within the brain, Um different constructs are in social psychology and to do that legwork is is going to be hard right and it's going to require different kinds of behavioral experiments that kind of triangulate these things it's going to require better methods than fmri um to get at this stuff and that doesn't make either position wrong necessarily but it certainly makes you know that conclusion premature at least is that a good non-answer? I'll take it. <laughs> it's high. That's better than I was expecting. <laughs> to come out of this one. All right. So, like, can I ask you just a bunch of, like, stoner questions about the brain? Because, like, I, I, Smriti and I both came from philosophy backgrounds, like, in undergrad. And philosophy of mind was the single, like, most probably like most different like i mean i we're allowed to swear on this podcast right smitty i i always describe philosophy of mind as the biggest head fuck of any philosophy subject like there's just so much in it where you're just like wow that's really weird right so i want to like just gauge your intuitions about some stuff right so um uh so functionalism is basically the idea that well the brain is a system right like it, it's essentially a system so everything everything that's produced by the brain including consciousness is just a result of like not the physical materials that the brain is made up of but the way they're arranged like what it's doing how they're interacting with each other right so if i replace one neuron in my brain with like a synthetic neuron like if we were able to create synthetic neurons out of i don't know uh, Plato. I would still be Paul, right? I'd still be conscious, like obviously, because this is like, I mean, neurons don't they like die all the time and they change all the time? Like, we, but we still, you know, nothing really changes. So, but then if I replace another one and then another one and then another one, eventually my entire brain is made up of these synthetic Plato neurons, like. Is, what's your intuition? Like, is it still conscious? Am I still Paul? Like, what is what is this Plato brain? What's going on in this Plato brain? Yeah, I, I don't know. To 
you know, I, I started off telling you the story about how, you know, taking the philosophy class got me into this stuff a little bit. Um, since then, I, I think I've sort of gone out of my way to not to jump over the quicksand, the philosophical quicksand that is consciousness, right? And of course, it's that play behind this, all this stuff a little bit. That's a great question. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't have a great intuition about it a little bit. You know, when I think about replacing, you know, replacing a neuron in, in a system that com, you know, that complex. Um, yeah, it's, I, I, I don't have a good intuition, to be honest with you. Like, I, I could see it going a variety of different ways. And I, I feel like whenever I get into this a little bit, my metaphors break down somewhat, right? It's like, you know, what does it mean for a society for, you know, to replace one person with an Android um, kind of situation? It's like, well, probably not that much. Is it still a society? I suppose, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and I mean, you have to keep in mind you, when you're replacing, well, a neuron over its lifetime isn't just like a neuron on its own that just communicating, right? It based on the signals that it's producing or not producing, it then changes how much it's connected to other neurons, right? And you build and deepen those connection or you lose it and you prune them. So you'd have to like, yeah, anyway, I mean, that is, yeah, but, the idea, but, I say, like... but the question of consciousness is really interesting. And I was recently watching this, um, podcast, which had, um, Sir Roger Penrose, who's a mathematician, um, on, and he was talking about consciousness and he sort of started looking into the brain to figure out where consciousness is. And I think he was talking about how with like AI, usually people think that the more it's just a computation, right? So if you could figure out if you build like more computationally intensive systems, somehow you would be able to recreate consciousness but then he talked about how well it seems like the cerebellum does a lot of computation right so anytime you're doing any physical activity and you're not really paying attention all the computation about you know if you're driving and you're not thinking about it right it's your cerebellum that's doing that computation about where to you know how to move your hands and how to where to whatever um so it's very computationally in intensive but there's no you know, there's no consciousness in the cerebellum as far as we know, which is really interesting, interesting, right? So it's not just computation. Um, but then he's looking into, gosh, I forget the name of these, um, these structures in, um, you know, when you have the spindles, when you're having mitosis, those little spindles are made of, of this, um, certain material. And he thinks that might be somehow related to consciousness because there's some researcher, I forget his name also, who is looking at what happens when you have general anesthesia. So he's like, well, one way to figure out what consciousness is, is to see what turns it off. So when you put people under anesthetic, you see what's happening in the brain. And it seems to be these structures that make up the spindles um, when you're, when mitosis is happening. And they seem to sort of line up a certain way when you under the... Um, so he, he thinks that might be one of the things that is sort of um, holds the key to consciousness but i mean he's not a neuroscientist and neither am i so <laughs> what do we know <laughs> yeah but yeah i i mean again <laughs> you know th these things are <laughs> I i'm really skeptical of any theory that reduces consciousness to a single thing of course yeah uh, in the brain right um but it's, it's, and it's I think... an interesting line of thought though Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and of course these are all hard problems and people are chipping away at them. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to give people the leeway to, you know, uh, play in that space a little bit, but, um, I wouldn't hang my hat on it all that. <laughs> I mean, obviously all this stuff is too premature to do much about. And, um, it, it's kind of what turns me off about consciousness research. I just don't feel like I could make any meaningful contribution to it. And it's hard to, 
it's it's really intense and a lot of smart people working there so it's hard to even um kind of crack into it a little bit sometimes but um yeah what do you think the future of neuroscience looks like so but because often when i think about neuroscience i think like and this is one thing i will admit is that even though i'm kind of not that impressed by like what people can do now like these talks that i was exposed to in ipsa the idea of like what might be possible in 100 years 200 years is pretty exciting to me like the idea that we could like map the whole brain and like with you know complex enough machine learning could really like yeah i assume read somebody's thoughts if you had enough information about what brain state in this individual was associated with what you know what content of consciousness that you could yeah do something like that what do you think yeah yeah yeah. so um yeah so i think a lot of social psychologists um criticisms of neuroscience in addition to you know they're taking our money is um fmri sucks (laughs) or eeg or whatever like technology that we have right now that people are using is really noisy and doesn't really do a good job of answering all our questions and certainly doesn't do a good job of answering our questions in you know how natural is it to lie on your back in a screaming donut um when you're trying to study social behavior um and you know so you know (laughs) if we could magically you know if we could wave our, our magic wand and get you know a device or a method that could record from all neurons simultaneously and we had a yeah machine learning infrastructure that could uh, tell us, you know, that could process that in some efficient way, we would still have to know about, you know, we'd still need, I think, some mapping between our behavioral things that we do, our behavioral theories, let's say, so to speak, right? And what the input to that AI system would be, right? Um, and this is why, again, I get frustrated when people are like, I don't see what neuroscience has to do with social psychology, it's, you know, you're not telling us anything. It's like, well, that's often not the goal. The goal is to try and build that map a little bit. Yeah, we're doing it with crappy tools like fMRI sometimes, but that's still of interest to a lot of people. And I don't think, you know, just having the magic tool and having the <laughs> having algorithms will actually lead us to any real understanding of what that means for behavioral necess- behavior necessarily, unless you do the legwork to try and um, figure out how these things are connected to, to build the, the communication, so to speak, between the levels of analysis and to see which, where they apply. Um, so, you know, if, if tomorrow everybody decided, okay, you know, neuroscience, we're done, we're closing down, um, all the imaging centers, you know, we're all just going back to behavioral research. Like, I think, I could do that and I could be interested in a little bit, but I'd always sort of wonder, like in the back of my head, I wonder how this, this thing that we're doing is being represented in the cortex. Right. Um, and you know, if your questions don't need that, then that's fine. I understand why people are not interested in that, but at the same time, like, I think that, 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 that's what I, that's what I'm, I'm most interested in and it's okay if other people aren't. And that's what I, where I see, um, our role as social neuroscientists chipping away at that a little bit. Now we need to be careful about how we phrase these things, like how we sell <laughs> what we're doing. Hey, we found the, you know, 
the neural basis of whatever. Like, no, we didn't. Um, but maybe we did a little bit to chip away at what we can possibly do with that in that future when we have all these things. We have some knowledge base um, to, if not confirm, at least like throw out, right? Um, in terms of advancing that. So um, I'm okay with being wrong, but I want to be fruitfully wrong um, in that in that pursuit. And in general, you know, um, I think psychologists, you know, social psychologists in particular, like to think about neuroscience and like to think about technology as new tools to study whatever it is that they're doing, right? And I, I alluded to this in the blog post a little bit, you know, so when we do physiological measures, you know, you know, that's kind of a tool we can use to like measure, I don't know, anxiety or something like that. Or if we're doing things that don't have anything to do with biology, let's say we're using text analysis, right? You know, we don't care necessarily about the words themselves. We care about what the text analysis can tell us about the psychological processes that go into that thing a little bit. Um, the difference between the peripheral physiology and the text analysis is that, you know, the brain is producing your behavior, right? That is the mechanism. That's the source. And, you know, to be able to link those together meaningfully it's going to take somebody to do that work. And I don't think, you know, the engineers are stewed enough in these behavioral paradigms to do that kind of work. Um, psychologists are. And if they want to join in at the table, I think that's a good place for them to be. Um, and it's, you know, um, when I get on my hires about this, it's just like, you know, and this is where I agree with, um, like, Yael and stuff. It's just like, you know, we can, you know, we can produce these nice behavioral experiments or these nice behavioral paradigms to then see how these things play out a little bit. And you need to have those in concert to do good work in my domain of neuroscience. But if you're constantly asking as a neuro, you know, as somebody who does these things, you know, what is the brain contributing to social psych theory? Um, if every experiment needs to do that, it's hard to do that kind of work. And psychology um, often feels like the only discipline that's always asking what can neuroscientists? What can neuroscience do for me? Rather than saying like, what can we do to understand the brain? Right? Physicists study the brain, um, and they, you know, we have uh, MRI physicists in our in all of our imaging centers. Right? These are people who are interested in using their physics degrees and their physics knowledge to study the brain, but they don't. For everything that they do, they don't have to go back and say, well. You know, I'm using this to, <laughs> they're not held accountable for like, okay, that's really interesting, but what does this tell us about quantum mechanical hydrogen spins, right? They don't have to worry about that. They just can apply their knowledge to a common um, study. And I think psychologists can be a part of that too, um, in some way, but it's, it's obviously really challenging and easy to oversell. Well, let's say hypothetically, there was a young social psychologist that is thinking about, yeah, how can I contribute to neuroscience? Are there any, you know, general tips about that that you have or like just words of caution or like how to approach it generally? I don't know if I have tips. I don't know if I have tips. It, it's, it, it's hard, I think. Um, uh, when I've heard people talk about this stuff, they've, they've often asked the question like, can you dabble? Right? Can you dabble in brain imaging a little bit? And you know, I wish you could. I, you know, I wish you could. Um, but I, I really think if you're interested in this stuff, um, you kind of have to commit a little bit. And that is limit. That's a limitation on a. You know, the type of work that we can do in this domain, 
and the type of people that get attracted to it in the first place. So, you know, when I try to think about, you know, what does the future look like for this? Should we, as, you know, neuroscience interested behavioral researchers, what could we do to make our studies better? Well, you know, I think it's just like everything else that's happening in science right now. It needs to become more collaborative. You shouldn't be required as somebody who's interested in the brain to know everything about the brain that there is, but you should at least be working with somebody who does. And maybe what you can bring into that collaboration is some interesting ideas of how to approach behavioral phenomenon, uh, behavioral studies, right? Um, and if those two people or groups of people can work in concert more effectively, and we have systems in place that reward that kind of stuff, um, I think that's a, a place that it could be really effective because there's just no way. I, I mean, I experience this and my students experience this all the time. It's like you can fall into the, you know, the deep dive rabbit holes in, in the weeds on both these topics, right? You know, um, I could I could spend the next, you know, six months learning about cortical layers and the way they interact with one another without learning a thing about social psychology. And, you know, I could walk away with that, not knowing, you know, how to put these things together at all. And the same is true on the other side of the equation. So, you know, I think if you, if you're a single, uh, you know, an individual researcher who wants to get into this stuff, I think you do have to commit a little bit because it's very technical and it's, and it's hard. Um, and it's, you know, and at the end of the day, people like Paul may or may not care. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but on the other hand, you know, maybe we could figure out a way to actually make this collaborative in the way that people always envisioned it to be so yeah that's great so it almost sounds like you're saying to this hypothetical student who's interested in focusing more on neuroscience that it they shouldn't really necessarily be going into neuroscience with the goal of making practical change in the world or like uh improving the education system for example that's not that's not necessarily a goal that's compatible with good neuro like generative um neuroscience you, you know I, I some people will probably disagree with me on this yes um i don't think neuroscience it, it maybe not in all areas but neuroscience as it's related to the types of as it's related to the things that we do in social psychology and even some parts of cognitive psychology um for the most part is the place to go if you want to do the most impact in the real world um if you want to do, if you want to make some impact in the basic science, of course, that's where you want to be. But it's probably as it is now, just not, certainly not there yet. Um, and it never will be if we don't do some of the groundwork stuff, um, which is why I think a lot of people are interested in that. But it, yeah, if you think you're going into, if you think you know, knowing like like the the video you shared with me, Smriti, like thinking that knowing principles about the brain are going to help you form your pedagogy um yeah that's 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 probably not that's probably not going to help I, i'll be skeptical of anything kind of at that level yeah. but rob don't you think let's things like we know that there's like a critical period in the brain for learning things like language right don't you think that has implications for when we teach language like doesn't that have like practical implications for how we teach or even sort of understanding how like, yeah, you know, numerical ability develops over time or, um, again, in my, from my, from my case, just have a motivation. Like what are these motivational systems? Um, I mean, yeah, there's no, I can't see of any direct relations, but yeah, at least like in terms of how we structure education doesn't like how the, like what the brain does and how it does it. Like, cause what we're trying to do when we're teaching is essentially help children, like 
build their cognition, right? To sort of help them build these like mental models. And I, I just think, yeah, maybe it's not obviously clear. And I don't think the goal should be like, well, I'm trying to solve this particular problem. But I think just knowing more about the brain, I think can be super helpful for how we teach. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if, and, and maybe this gets at Paul's point a little bit. Um, I'm not sure how much it actually, like knowing the mechanisms may or may not help unless you can intervene upon those mechanisms, right? So if you could do something to, um, or, or, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I, I could see places do that. Where Whether or not there's, you know, we're gonna find evidence of that, I think is there's reason to be skeptical um at least with the tools that we have now but um but again you know you know learning that you know why you know from my perspective as somebody who's not trying to um make the world a better place i don't mean that um, who's not actively doing applied research um is uh is that you know i might sit around and ask you know why is it so hard for adults to learn why is it that my daughter who is taking uh, she's in this French immersion school. Like she can learn French words like nobody's business. I got a C in French in college um, when I was trying to avoid learning Spanish, which I should have been learning, but I didn't because I was so bad at it. And you know, <laughs> um, you know, why is it easier for her than for me? And you know, as unsatisfactory as it might seem, it's like, well, if there are changes in the brain that don't allow you to do that, that is not a perfect explanation. But like, it helps couch it a little bit. Does that mean that? You know, oh well, then we'll manipulate that system, and all of a sudden, I'll be able to learn languages. Maybe not, um, but at least um, it can help calibrate what is po the possibility space of you know what you can and cannot change, and provide uh, some evidence of mechanism, so to speak. But I mean, I am I consider myself like a social psychologist, like through and through, right? And I mean. One of the basically, you know, the, the original tenets of social psychology is action research, doing research that is sort of relevant for society. Like I see no, well, not no point, of course, but um, it is something that's important. So point taken, Rob. And it's kind of annoying that you're just agreeing with Paul on everything, but that's okay. <laughs> that is fine. <laughs> I think, I think my problem is that I, you know, I sort of agree and disagree with everything within myself sometimes, right? Um you know, I, as much of a champion as I am for a lot of these things, like I, I'm also frustrated a lot by things that happen in the field, you know, maybe each one of, you know, you know, I, I don't want to pick on anybody in particular, but like some areas of research, they'll be like, Hey, we did this clinical intervention. Um, so on, on people, so we're going to, you know, contrast the people who got the clinical intervention versus the people who didn't get the clinical intervention. We're going to see where there are differences in the brain. Well, you know, of course, everything causes a difference in the brain. And, you know, that may or may not tell you anything about the intervention, or that intervention may not tell you anything useful about the brain, or the brain may not tell you anything interesting about the intervention if it's just kind of a humdrum, like here are the, the blobs that did this, right? But in defense of some of the early blobology, so to speak, you needed to be able to bootstrap yourself a little bit um, out of like, we don't know where anything is going on. So, you know, here's a brain blob. And now we have a lot of blobs that we can actually make, um, get a, a somewhat better picture about what things happen. But I think those days of doing that kind of work are behind us. 
So now we need to be a little bit more sophisticated in, in our, both our technical and theoretical approaches to this stuff. And that's hard. Um, and it's hard to do that and then insist that it has real world applications at the same time. That's a fair mm -hmm. point. Do you have, do you have anything else? Yes. No, I think. Yeah. Oh, you did? Well, I have one. If we have no other technical mm -hmm. questions, then I do have a, one final question. Um, so, in your like email, in our email exchange, uh, Rob, you mentioned that you don't agree with a lot of things that we say. So, I was just curious whether there's something that just jumps out at you that we've talked about in our podcast that you really disagreed with, because I would love to know. So, I think I wrote you that email after I had just listened to an episode where I was like, "Ah." I don't know about that, um, but I, I mean, I can't, I can't think of it. I'm not going to think of anything off the top of my head. Um, I will say though that, uh, you know, I, I think it's really brave of you guys to do this kind of podcast. Um, you know, I know you talk about issues that are kind of controversial to a lot of people, but I think you do it with a lot of nuance. And, um, and what I said in the email and I'll reiterate here is that, you know, even if I don't agree with you, um, and I sometimes find myself not. Um, I, I like hearing it because I think having the voices that are you know, people who are actually thinking these things, having their voices as, you know, represented in what is being said, um, is really, is really important. And, um, and it gives me a lot of stuff to think about, um, sometimes too. And I know that not only as a grad student and especially an earlier in my career grad student, would I not have the the moxie to do that. I would, don't have the moxie to do that now. And I, so, um, so I really respect that. And that's, that's the reason I emailed you and I appreciate you getting back to me. So. Yeah, no, of course that's, that was very meaningful. I think that is what you're saying is exactly what we were trying to do. Just have a conversation about things that people are kind of afraid to talk about. Um, I, are we brave? I don't know. Uh, we're just, uh, yeah. So there's this thin line between bravery and stupidity. And I'm, I'm always very concerned. Like, am I actually just being really stupid? I don't know. But we'll yeah, um, we appreciate that. We, and we really appreciate you coming on on this, which is the final episode. Yes. Of season one. Yeah. So um, what a great close. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll be back. We're not sure when exactly. Sometime in January. Right? Um, sometime in January. We're lining up a few guests that should be really interesting yep. and exciting yep. and in the meantime yeah just find us on twitter and tell us what you think tell yep. us what you agree with what you disagree with and <laughs> yeah. um, we'll be back in the new year and i'll have a screaming baby in the background <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. that'll be that's that, right that'll, that'll be, be interesting a great detriment to the quality of the podcast <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway yeah Wonderful. great to talk to you guys yeah thank you so much um, for being here rob yeah yeah and, thank, thanks again for having me oh and thank you so much to everybody who's listened to us yeah. like we we're still shocked and don't understand it completely <laughs> but we really appreciate it and i also wanted to say a special thank you to um i may mispronounce her name but lisa lisa peters who uh engaged really thoughtfully um and nicely with our last episode um so th thank you lise or lisa or however you say your name uh yeah. but we appreciate it yeah i will say yeah this podcast has been like one of the highlights of this year i mean it's much so shittier but you know I, it's been really nice to connect with people and i feel so much more like a part of the field um after doing this so yeah, thank you for listening to us and thank you robin yeah have a good you know holiday uh, break and we'll see you guys in january Right. Cool. Bye. See ya.